Greetings. I hope you're all keeping cool in a blistering hot summer again in St. Louis. And uh, I remember as a child, we did not have air conditioning and uh, we had a screened in porch and we used to go out there and sleep for the evening because allegedly people slept in Forest Park back in the teens and 20s. They did in, what was her name? Now I'm just blanking. She won two Oscars. She's from here. The Poseidon Adventure, Shirley. Shelly Winters. Shelly Winters. That's right, because her name was Shirley. Shelly also named as, uh, Shirley also named as Shelly. That's right, Shelly Winters. She wrote that in her biography that they used to sleep in Forest Park. We will have an amazing discussion with Christine Brewer, opera superstar, for the next 45 minutes. And then around... Minute 50, we will talk Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. At one hour and one minute, we will talk Asteroid City, which is the new Wes Anderson film. So Christine Brewer is our guest, and this is, I'm so happy that we have some of your time because you are a busy, busy woman. She was named one of the greatest sopranos of the 20th century by Time Magazine, and she has Grammys and other accolades. Uh, I'm not sure if you have them nearby, but you've got quite a... Now, Christine, now hold on a second. Christine, I want to ask you something about this. Okay. Because I saw, first of all, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I want to, I want to ask you something because I, I'm a, I've been in music radio for a long time and I know people that have Grammys and some get them for weird things and some don't get them. They're like, I was on a project that won a Grammy, so I didn't get a physical Grammy. You sang with, Leonard Slatkin on a choral project in 2006, 2005. I think five or six. Yeah. Yeah. And he won the Grammy and the choral director won the Grammy. You did the singing. You did not actually get a physical Grammy. Did you? I got a, um, you know, a beautifully framed um, picture with the Grammy stamp on it, but because there were, it wasn't a um, you know like a standard. If you went to hear a Mozart Requiem, you would hear an orchestra, a chorus, and four soloists, and that's sort of the standard, you know. Or a, a Britain War Requiem, there are three soloists. But in this piece that Bill Bolcom wrote, I can't even tell you how many soloists there were. I had the tenor and I had the major amount of singing but there were people who just came in and sang one solo or that. So I think they probably just thought we can't, if we can't give it to everybody, we're just going to send these plaques. But well, I on the, on the Grammy that. page, you're listed first as singers. Yes. You're yes. you're first. And it's, and I don't think it's alphabetical because you're no. a brewer. Right. 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 No, but it was a great project. And I've worked a lot with Leonard. Um, I met him first when I was singing in the symphony chorus as a, a, you know, I was in school and, but they would sometimes say, oh, Christine, will you cover the soprano solo parts until the soprano soloist arrives? So I knew him from that, you know, but then, um, then my career took off and I was singing a lot with the BBC symphony and he was uh, their conductor. I can't remember what years, but he came in one time to do a pro a, a project Proms? And was, well, we did. I don't know if we ever did a proms. I did a lot of proms, but he came in. Oh, no, we were going to record um, 
Samuel Barber's opera Vanessa. And um, I was chatting it up with the, you know, the members of the orchestra and he looked sort of surprised. And then they said, oh yeah, we have Christine here a lot. We love her. And I think he was still thinking of me as that girl in the court. As a child. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but we've had lots of projects together, but that one was really, really fun. So well, let's still say you're a Grammy winner. I, I think, well, yes. Yeah. Oh, we, of, of course. Absolutely. Well, she she is a favorite here in St. Louis, even though she's been around the world and she lives right across the river in Lebanon, Illinois, where she went to college at McKendree. So you were a stone's throw from your alma mater and you were so, so kind because you do master classes at Webster and McKendree and other places too. So Mm -hmm. you have developed, uh, I want to say your second chapter. How about that? Second well, chapter. Continuing chapter. I mean, um, it's so funny because a lot of times, of course, after the pandemic, you know, everything shut down and I, every job I had for two years was postponed, canceled. Uh, we can't have people in the building, you know, and, um, and so when things started opening up, um, I was thrilled, but people are like, wait, are you still singing? Well, yeah, I had a two, two year hiatus, you know, like most <laughs> of us did. Um, but I'm, I've been working at Webster as a visiting professor for probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 years because I could put it into my schedule. I, I only go over a couple times a year and do residencies and, um, and it's a way for me to keep in touch with young singers, which is really important to me. Well, and you're very good at it because I saw you, I attended one of your uh, master classes at, at Lebanon. I was doing a piece in the Sunday magazine for the Belleville News Democrat, which the Sunday magazine is no longer. But I remember my editor uh, saying after, because I had such a good time talking with Christine (laughs) and gathering information, my editor uh, writes me back and he goes, Lynn, this is 70 inches. And I said, well, she's had a very interesting life. And he goes, Lynn, you know, so he said, uh, uh, you got to cut it <laughs> a oh. lot. So or I do have- a two-parter. You could have said you were going to do a two-parter. Yeah, there you go. But yeah. she has a just a wonderful life. So tell us about you living in a small town and how how you knew that singing was something to pursue professionally. Well, I, I, um, I grew up in also another Illinois town. And when I say Southern Illinois, of course, anyone in Chicago thinks everyone south of Chicago is Southern Illinois. But I lived another two hours south of where we are now. You know, I I grew up in Grand Tower, which is on the Mississippi, uh, population 500. And um, right across the river from Grand Tower is the beautiful Tower Rock, which is sort of inaccessible little island. Um, They had a, a point last year I think it was last year where the water got so low people were going on the on the west side in Wittenberg Missouri and they could actually walk out to the the Ew. tower but I mean I grew up being able to see it but you could never get to it I remember that story yes yeah so it's it's really a beautiful place very small um we went to a consolidated school of you know three counties Alexander Jackson and Union County in Illinois so it's I think still the longest um school districts you know 
in the in the state. But anyway, I grew up in a musical family. My mom sang. She was a gospel jazz singer, uh, sang in a trio. Uh, all my mom's family played instruments and sang, and I played the violin. So there was never a moment in my life that I didn't think I was going to do something in music. I thought maybe I would be play in an orchestra or, you know, but my singing was just something I did for fun. And I never took lessons until I started um, McKendree, started college. Um, and singing opera was probably the furthest thing from my mind because I'd never even seen an opera until I got to McKendree and our professor took us to see Don Giovanni. And <clears throat> it just blew me away. I, I mean, it was, I was, I was just, I didn't even know something like that existed, you know, and that kind of thrill you get when you see opera and see it live. There's nothing like it. And so um, I got my degree in music education and um, did all the studies, you know, playing all the different instruments and all that. And I got a job teaching K through 12 music in Marissa, Illinois, another Southern Illinois town, <laughs> Illinois town. So, um, I did that for one year and then my voice really started changing after I got out of college, it started getting bigger. And I was always studying singing. I always had voice lessons and stuff, even when I was teaching. So I quit teaching full time and just became a, um, a substitute teacher. So I could sub whenever I needed to, but I could go to auditions and I could go to voice lessons and I didn't have to be on a, a you know, five day a week schedule. Um, and I did that for about probably six years, all the while studying voice. I, I auditioned for the St. Louis Symphony Chorus. They hired me as a section leader. Um, I auditioned for the Opera Theater Chorus, and I got in that. I did a couple uh, chorus things with the Opera Theater. Um, but little by little, conductors were starting to hear me, and, but they, this is what they always said. We hear a bigger voice in there but you're too young right now to sing these big roles. So it was a, a dilemma. So I just started singing concert repertoire, Mozart Requiem, uh, the Handel Messiah. Um, and that was sort of my bread and butter while my voice was getting bigger. Um, but I kept substitute teaching. That was kind of on the side, you know, that was my side gig. And um, in Illinois, at least at the time we're talking about in the 80s, um, every summer you would go to the courthouse and have them renew your teacher certificate. So then I could continue substitute teaching. My husband was a teacher, so we all, one of us would go to the, the courthouse with both certificates and get them stamped. And I can remember the date, it was 1989, um, Ross came back from the courthouse and I said, okay, I'll put my certificate in the file. He said, I didn't get yours renewed this year. And I was furious with him. He said, well, you know, Richard Gaddis and I had a chat. Richard was the general director of the Opera Theater. I said, you had a chat with Richard Gaddis? And he said, yeah, and you know, we think you're using the substitute teaching as a, just a, a fallback. You can, you know, and you're not putting 100% of your power into auditioning. And we think you just need to do that. I was furious with him. And, um, but that was the year I won the Met auditions and I won the Richard Tucker auditions and I, and I got management. I mean, actually managers were calling and that was the turning point. And then after that, 
I started singing everywhere. So I came about this in a very strange way. And I, I use this example with, with students at Webster, for instance. Um, I, when I graduated from college, I was 20 years old. I taught school. My voice wasn't developed enough to sing opera in a big opera house, really until I was about 30. So um, we all take a different journey to get to this point. But I still have that feeling when I'm doing a, a, a job that someone's going to find out that I didn't major in voice performance, that I majored in music education, or they're going to come in and say, you didn't study at a conservatory. How dare you sing in our opera house? You know, I mean, I still have those insecurities and those little twinges, you know, but, um, but anyway, I, I just learned on my feet. I learned watching people at opera theater when I was in the chorus, I would watch the principal artists like, oh, wow, I like how they were able to do that. And their acting is this was good. And so as a result, I learned on my feet. And I think for me, that worked. And I still pinch myself at times when I think about places I've sung and um, conductors I've worked with. It's just been a really fun ride and a blessing. What are some well, of the you, most uh, uh, glorious opera houses you have been at around the world? What are some of your favorites? Well, certainly um, the Royal Opera House in London, in Covent Garden. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And I love singing there. Um, I, I sang, let's see, I, I sang um, in The Countess in Marriage of Figaro there. I sang uh, Donna Anna in Giovanni, the first opera I ever saw. And um, and then one day my managers called me and they shut down the opera house for a couple of years to do some renovations. And um, mostly it was renovations for the backstage area um, because the hall is beautiful and acoustically beautiful. But um, he said, oh, um, you know, when they reopen, uh, it's gonna be a big event. The queen will be there. It's gonna be really big. And they want you and um, Placido Domingo to sing for the um, for the reopening of the opera house. Now I, I I laughed. I said, "Yeah, okay, that's a good one. Thanks, sure, I'll be there." He said, "No, no, really." I said, "Seriously, they want some girl from the U.S. to come over and <laughs> sing for the reopening." Of, they and he said, "Yes." And so when I finally did realize that that it was a real deal, I was thrilled and. Um, you got to, there's a picture of you and the current king on yes. your website. Yes, that that was actually when he was in uh, San Francisco, and I sang oh. for a private party for for him and Camilla. Yeah, yeah. But I did get when I got to meet the queen. There's all this protocol, and so after the performance, because the 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 ballet performed and uh, the the chorus, and then we had some solos, you know, and um, we had to line up. The, the soloists had to line up on the stage in a diagonal and then they would it was after the audience had left and they would open the curtain and the queen would come through and you know the whole thing you don't don't touch her and if she reaches out her hand you can say don't uh, start the conversation you know if she says something first and they're telling me all this stuff really seriously you know and I and I said 
well, then can I just give her a big old hug? And <laughs> I thought they were going to throw me out of the opera house. Oh, no, no, do not. I said, you know what? I know I look like a hillbilly, but I do understand the protocol, and it's all good. And so she was lovely. She was lovely, and um, uh, and, and she did talk to me. She was very kind and very sweet and, and beautiful. Um, but when I met um, now King Charles, Prince Charles, uh, in San Francisco, he and K Camilla were on a tour of America, and I was singing at the opera. Um, I think I was doing Fidelio, Beethoven's opera Fidelio, and and when I do operas, you know, you have to they have the contract that you are contracted. Like right now, I know I'm rehearsing six days a week. I get one day a week off, and I know that you know even though July Fourth falls is a holiday. I am rehearsing, you know, so you know all this stuff ahead of time. But I knew I had a gig in Rome well before I got the gig in San Francisco. So I just said, could you make a, you know, give me a, a release for five days to go and do these two concerts in Rome? And they agreed to it. So we're in the middle of rehearsals. I go to Rome, do my concerts. I come back and two people have been fired in, in the production that I'm in. And and I, you know that they're fired when... They say, we're so, oh, um, they had family issues. They had to go home. Oh, they had allergies. They had to quit or whatever. Quote that, you know, that's the code for, we fired them. And then I was so afraid they were going to fire me because I'd missed five days and everything. And it was the day of the first dress rehearsal. And I was talking to my husband and I said, you know, I I'm so nervous. I I don't want you to fly out here until you I know that I don't I didn't get fired. And tonight's a dress rehearsal. I get a call from the general director right after I talked to my husband and I thought, Oh great. She's calling to fire me over the phone. And I wasn't really listening. <laughs> and then I heard the word Prince Charles and I went, Oh wait, I'm sorry. We had a bad connection. What were you saying? Well, Prince Charles is going to be in town and he doesn't really like rock music. We found that out when he was in Boston. So the mayor has asked us to send a singer and a pianist over to sing for this little dinner of 25 people. And I went, oh, yeah, sure, I can do that. And so thought I was getting fired, but I got a little bit of the job, you know. But you got to meet the prince. I did, and he was lovely. He loves classical music. And um, and so we talked about that. He talked about his favorite pieces. And I said, oh, I've just recorded that. And in fact, I even brought a CD of a recording that I had done with Donald Ronicles, who was playing the piano for me that night. Uh, and conducting at the opera. So got to meet him and he's lovely, very kind, got a nice thank you note. And yeah, so long story. Wow. Carl, no, you, were, the, you, were gonna ask, story. you were going to ask. You were going to ask. I was going to ask. When you started in the late 80s, early 90s, St. Louis was a hub and you got to fly direct to London yes. from there. Now, how has your traveling changed over the course of your career? Yeah, it was great back then because I was singing a lot in, in the UK. I had a London manager who was just amazing. And and he was really a manager. He wasn't just a booking agent, you know. We would have meetings and sit down and he'd say, okay, where do you want to be in five years? How do you want to get, get there? And he would make it happen um, because he knew that – singing the big roles like Wagner roles like Isolde and, and, and Brunhilde would come later in my, you know, not when I'm 30. And so we, we were able to plan things, you know, 
but in the meantime, he was having me, uh, he found uh, places for me to sing concerts in um, London or in Edinburgh or, way, you know, in, in uh, uh, Wales, um, all over the UK. So it was great having that uh, nonstop flight from St. Louis to, to London. TWA. I know, I know. And then when they dropped that, I pretty much was just flying out of O'Hare. I would just take flights. And my daughter lived in Chicago for a while, so I would kind of incorporate. I'd go a couple days early and spend time with her and then then fly to um, wherever I was going in Europe. Um, And now flying is just a different thing because for me, it's like a health issue. And I'm still the one getting on the plane with a with a mask on, um, and um, there have. But been... you have to protect you have to protect yeah. your voice. Well, exactly. And you know, my daughter was kidding me about it because she traveled a lot with me when she was a little kid, and she said, "Mom, you've always been a freak show on the airplane." She said, "You got scarves all over your shoulder, <laughs> pull them over your face. You give dirty looks to people who sneeze or cough, you know." And now I I just you know unashamedly put on the ba- the the mask because well the japanese and the asian community have been doing that for decades ever whenever i'm in japan for years and and they do it to be kind if they have a cold they put a mask on so they don't pass their sneezing on to you i mean i, I don't know why it's because it was such an issue but it has changed the way of travel and um i know I guess it was when I did my first flight, it was sort of at the end of the pandemic, but we were doing, you know, you had to get, I had to get a COVID test every day backstage and you had to wear masks in, in LA. I was going out for um, some concerts and my grandson said, he said, I'm a little worried about you flying. You know, I said, oh, well, honey, mm-hmm. I'll be fine. I, you know, he said, I've been seeing on the news, people are getting beat up on airplanes and I don't want you to get beaten up on an airplane. Okay. <laughs> he was like seven or eight. Yeah. And I went, well, honey, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into a fight on the airplane. Don't worry about it. So he gave me um, a silver dollar that he had in his, you know, in his little piggy bank. He goes, I want you to carry this and for good luck. And he still asks me, you know, do you still, and I said, it's right here. In my wallet. It's right here, baby. Aww. So yeah. Yeah. But, How um, sweet. Yeah, but I'm really careful about it. And uh, I don't know. I'm, I, I've been fortunate, you know, but. We well, just... well, you've you've mentioned the Royal Opera House. You mentioned the Met. Yeah. Uh, have you have you been to Sydney? Yes, several times. Um, I love Australia and New Zealand. I do, too. I wanted to move to Australia. My wife hated the food. Oh, no, no. I love I and I just love their zest for life and yeah so I've sung in Melbourne several times and in Sydney at the Opera House um I've been to both of those places and we tried to get tickets to see Mamma Mia it was brand new in Melbourne and they do not understand the secondary market in Australia right. I said they said it's sold out and I said okay so where can I go get tickets it it it, it doesn't exist over there right right yeah, that makes it easy though. You just you know, yes, one place. Right. They, right. I, it's it's sold out. Well, sir, don't you understand what sold out <laughs> means? And I say, well, no, I'm American. There's always there's always a ticket available. Right, right. No, sir, that we have sold as many tickets as the theater will hold. 
then where then where can I get a ticket? They didn't understand what a secondary market was. And it I I love it. I think that's great. I do too. I do too. Yeah, well, it's fair. Yeah, and, but sometimes I look on those secondary markets and they're like, $2,000? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know? No. Now, okay, I also sang in Perth. Oh, and, uh, the uh, Western Australia. Yes, yes. And and so <laughs> it was my first time. I, well, no, it was the first time my husband went with me. So I was in Melbourne and then Perth. And, uh, and then I had like a week in between when i had to go to sydney or so i we 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 were there for like four weeks because that would be going like new york to los angeles to miami exactly exactly so we we thought let's take the train from melbourne to perth oh my god it was it was so long and really you know you didn't get did you go to airs rock no or did it not not even it didn't even go that far didn't go there but I said to Ross, you plan what you want to do. Well, you know, when I have the break. So he did some research and he said, we're going to, I've got us booked. We're going to go to Rottnest Island. It's just, we could take a ferry from Perth and get there. And um, it just sounds lovely. Great. You know, uh, right. Perfect. We mentioned it to some people in Melbourne, you know, you know, when you're chatting backstage and I, and then what are you, what are your plans? And then I said, well, then after Perth, we're going to go to Rottnest Island. And this is the sort of, we got this look like, oh, oh, Rottnest Island, right? Oh, okay. Okay. You, you're going to stay there or just go for the day? No, we're going to stay there for four days. Oh, and everybody that we said it to. So I said to Ross that night, we get back to our hotel. I said, what's the deal with Rottnest Island? Everybody acted like it's a weird place to go. And so I looked it up online. Uh, the hotel that he had booked us in had been a prison. And um, there are no cars allowed on Rottnest Island, which is cool. But we were there in the off season. So when the four o'clock ferry left Rottnest Island for the day. You're trapped. You're trapped. And so, um, and we were the only, there was only one other person staying in this prison hotel. I mean, it, and I'm making it sound worse than it was. I mean, well, the whole uh, island was a prison. Yes. And so then I started panicking. I said, okay, what if, what if we have a heart attack or something? What, what are we going to do? And so of course I called the front desk. I said, there's somebody there, right? In case there's an emergency. And, and they're like, well, yes, ma'am. You know, um, but I just, every night, I, this was so scary, but it was truly the most beautiful place. I mean, we went out during the days and uh, walked on the beaches and they have these little marsupials called, called quakas and they look like miniature, mm, kind of a cross between a rat and a kangaroo. Um, mm. and, the, and all the little tour books will say, oh, you might see a shy little quaka you know, they're very delicate. They're very protected. They don't allow dogs on the island, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, oh, that's so cool. I opened the door of our hotel room one day and walked outside and there were like 40 or 50 quackas all around and they look like rats to me. <laughs> I freaked out. And Ross still, my husband still tells the story. He's like, I never heard you cuss that much in my life. <laughs> so those little shy quackas weren't shy when it's off season, you know? So, yeah, so we've, we've, in New Zealand, uh, I've been there several times. Um, well, I, I wanted, I want to 
backtrack and let you know my wife's allergic to shellfish and seafood. So the all the cities in Australia are on the coast, and so her menu was very limited there. Yes, yes. Oh my god. Oh, that's She's like, like, I like the potatoes. Oh, <laughs> these are delicious. Yeah. Well, and so yeah, but ev almost everything that you eat, since oh, all the cities are on the coast, is is seafood. And it's fresh, shrimp on the barbie. Oh, it, oh, oh it's, it's great. So oh my god. And nobody drinks Fosters over there. They think it's like bush beer. Yes, yes, you're right. They you're drink right. they drink Victoria bitter. Yeah. VB. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we could talk about Australia all okay. day. More. Let's let's talk about okay. Turn of the Screw. Well, great idea. Great idea. Yes, that this is why you were here because Union <laughs> Union Avenue Opera invites you uh, regularly to be in their shows, and I recall seeing you as Sister Aloysius in Doubt a couple yeah. of years ago when you had already been in the Minnesota Opera version of Doubt, right. and then you now, were hold here. On, hold on, was... I I I have to say something that I learned this week, and if I don't say it now, I will forget it. Wallet Hub did a list of the most theaters per capita and New York and California were tied. Illinois was second. That makes 100%. Fourth was Minnesota and fifth was Missouri, which some people say is because of Branson. I say it's because of a lot of theater in St. Louis, right, but right. Minnesota has more theaters per capita than almost every other state, except the ones you would expect. Yeah, I, I, I would. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Well, the Guthrie is really famous, yeah, but that's I, not opera. That's that's dramatic. Yeah, yeah. But, but I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt. Oh, no, no Back worries. to Minnesota. So yeah, yeah. so um, the we did the world premiere in Minnesota, and then um, a lot of times, you know, a world premiere is great, and you put all the work in, and then it doesn't get performed again. So I was thrilled when Scott Schoonover asked me, "Could I, you know?" Could I do doubt there? I, and I said, absolutely. I think it's a great piece. And um, so it was nice to connect with Scott with Union Avenue Opera. And um, and since then, we've done another Benjamin Britten opera, uh, Albert Herring, which is a comedy. Um, we did very Candy. funny. That was very it's, funny. That's very funny. And really, it's it's one of the perhaps only roles I do that is humorous, you know, there's not a lot of jokes in Tristan and Isolde, you know, or uh, so Benjamin Britten has been really one of my favorite composers to sing. And um, this one is this opera, The Turn of the Screw, I have not done before. It's one of the few Britten roles that um, were written for my kind of voice that I haven't been able, haven't been asked to do, haven't been able to do. So when Scott presented the idea, I said, absolutely, I can't wait to do it. And, um, and it's, it's going to be great. It's going to be fun. It sounds wonderful because I'm familiar with Turn of the Screw, the Henry James novella, uh -huh. but I didn't, I wasn't aware that it was an opera. And so as I was checking it out, you're going to play Mrs. Gross, the housekeeper. And yeah. this is I think this is very unusual and very different for Union Avenue Opera, but of course they can pull it off because they are uh, an incredibly inventive group, I think. Yes. And uh, uh, so July 7th, 8th, 14th, and 15th, you are playing the housekeeper of Bly Manor. 
and it's a young governess comes in to take care of two precocious orphans and she discovers something sinister is afoot so it's a ghost story it is a ghost story and and stephen king said of all the ghost stories and things that he has read this uh henry james novella the the turn of the screw was in the top two scariest uh spooky stories he ever read so that's a pretty big i mean and it is it's you don't you don't think about operas being you know uh like spooky horror stories you know but this one is and it's beautifully written i love his harmonies and the way you'll hear things in the orchestra that you'll sort of go what instrument was playing that it's they get this really cool spooky sound and um the singers in the cast the young woman who's playing um the the new governess the inexperienced young woman coming in fresh and with all these hopes is um Meraway, um uh, kalia adib and she is amazing amazing actress and singer uh james um stevens is playing quint he's he was the master's valet as they would say in the uk or valet of bly matter now he's a ghost and miss jessel the former governess who is dead is the other ghost and then the two children so there are only six characters on stage and alexandra uh, martinez turano is playing miss jessel and the two children are played by cecilia hickey and sophie um yilmaz and so there are only six of us on stage oh wow only 13 in the orchestra so it's it's one of his um uh chamber operas the the albert herring that we did is also a chamber opera small orchestra small cast and they were able to tour when britain was doing that sort of thing around the uk and 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 in europe uh as well um so this one is very special and some of the most beautiful music i think you'll you'll ever hear that's wonderful. I was unfamiliar with it as an opera. And then I saw that Nancy Bell was directing and she's yes. one of my favorite theater people in town. She is so good at what she does. So what is it like to work with Nancy Bell? It is great working with Nancy. At the first, the first rehearsal for any opera is usually a sing through. And that's what we did. And then the next segment, um, she said, let's just do some table talk let's you know and i love it when directors do that and um a lot of times it doesn't happen in the opera world you know in, in plays or in musicals you know you sit and do a table read or whatever but in opera a lot of times you just like okay we're going to stage scene one or whatever but she she really talked to each one of us about well, what do you think when you're saying that singing this what do you think is in in the back you know what's the back story who are you and she did a lot of that before we even started staging. And she's got this incredible eye and she can catch little things that you aren't even aware of and help you figure out a way, how do I make that work? You know, um, opera is so different now than I think it was, you know, 50 years ago when, what did they call it? Uh, when the singers would just, um, oh, it was a rhyming thing like stand and bark, but it wasn't. I don't know. <laughs> stand and shout or whatever where you just plant your feet and you just sing really loudly and there wasn't really a lot of acting 
But now it's really important to see um, good actors. And I, I, it really helps make the story more real to me. And she's, well, I, she's able to help us do that. Well, I think with a 19th century horror story that you would have <laughs> to have some really good actors on stage. But that's one of my favorite discoveries of going to see opera because I was new to opera. And when I saw the Emmeline and the one, The Grapes of Wrath, Oh, yes. Oh, my good God. Was that so powerful? Yeah. It just was ovation after ovation after ovation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because they were so genuinely emotive. And so did you ever have to take acting lessons at all for, for getting into this? Because opera now is, you have to have that whole package. Well, I did, when Colin Graham was um, at the opera theater, um, early in my career, he was sort of a, a, a big mentor for me. And we did a, pro a program up in Banff, uh, Alberta, in Canada. Um, I can't even remember what it was called. Um, but it was a six-week program. We, ended, we did two Britain operas at the end of it, but we had acting lessons, we had improv lessons, we had diction lessons. It was intensive. And he brought in... Uh, you know, singers and directors and actors who could help us with those things. And so that's, I've had that, but mostly I gotta say, I've, I've watched when I was younger, the principals artists and sort of the ones that I thought really got it. And I thought, what makes that work? And I asked a lot of questions. And for me, what it's boiled down to, and I say this to, to singers all the time, it's just about telling a story honestly. And I think, and my daughter used to, you know, make fun of me. She'd go with the, you know, little expert, you know, uh, she'd go, mom, I just hate those opera gestures where you just throw your hands out for no reason. And, you know, and she was at a rehearsal one day with in Paris and the director said the very same thing to me. He goes, you know, Christine, could you please, you don't need to, you know, what, what's that expression for with your arms? And I could see my daughter sitting behind him, nodding her head, like, yep, uh -huh. yep, yep, you know, been telling She's her that. Listen to me, mom. Yep, yep. So, um, so mostly, and, and from good directors who help, you know, sometimes I, and sometimes it's just one sentence or one little idea that sparks my imagination and makes all the difference. Well, it's so great to have you back and see that. And uh, I know you bond very well with your castmates and everything. I was talking to somebody who worked at the Opera Theater when you were uh, coming back as major diva in like your acclaimed after the Time Magazine okay. honor. And, and he would say, of all the people we have here, she's the nicest one. She Aww. treats everybody the same. And he says, we have so many stars that do not do that. So that's a very nice compliment to have because people that's talk, nice. people talk oh, behind. I know. I know. I know. And you know, though, I mean, honestly, you know, you hear all these, these stories about, the divas that throw the other sopranos costumes in the hallway or they do this or that and honest to god just for me being prepared to sing whatever the role is takes all my energy i would not have the energy to do the other stuff it's just like 
just let's get on with our work, you know. Um, and 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 really, this cast, I love. We we eat lunch together, and we all bring our you know lunches and sit and talk, and and even discuss some of the things we're going to do in the next rehearsal. And it's just really nice. So, yeah, I always try to feel like we, I don't know, like we connect like a family. And I think we'll do a better job performing if we are like family. And Carl, she gives what? everybody a note ahead of time and a little gift. As you sh that's wonderful because then, you know, yeah. there'll be somebody who, you know, is unsure and a little note like that could boost their confidence or and make their day and make the whole production better. Well, you know, I've received beautiful notes throughout the years and I've saved probably most of them, if not all of them. And sometimes it's just the little boost you need right before a performance, you know. Um, and sometimes if I'm in a city where I know, um, you know, maybe a music director or something, I'll, um, and I haven't done it yet with this cast because it's such a small cast, but when you've got like 40 chorus members and, and, and whatnot, we'll find a, um, a music fund that we can donate money to and not give gifts to each other. But we'll we'll you know give money to the band program at you know a school or something like that. So um, so anyway, but truthfully, I haven't hadn't thought much about this yet. We're in the thick of the rehearsals right now, and I'll tell you, my brain is um, well. Miss Mrs. Gross, one of her my favorite lines is when she says, um, "I'm an ignorant old woman." Uh, I'm too old for games, miss, too old for games. These children wear me out. And so I said, I think this was typecasting. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's really fun. And, um, and I will say Mrs. Gross, I think has moments in the opera where she's trying to, she never sees the ghosts, but she's trying to comfort the governess and make her feel better. And so I, the music he wrote for me sometimes is the little bright, you know, oh, look how beautiful the sun is shining today, you know, and then we get the gloom and doom over here. And then I'm trying to, you know, cheer everybody up. <laughs> well, Bly Manor is so well known nowadays because yes. Netflix. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. And, um, and and some people do see ghosts and do see spirits and, and some don't. And Mrs. Gross, I think is so just, you know, my job is to take care of the house. I'm the housekeeper. And it's in a way, I don't have time to worry about these ghosts. I'm, I'm just, I'm here to do my job. And, um, but I will say musically, it's, it's one of the most um, challenging pieces. Um, I talked to some of the folks in the orchestra and they said, yeah, it's, it's Benjamin Britten and his music always is tricky. And thankfully we've got someone like Scott Schoonover conducting because he never makes us feel like um, it's not going to happen. He's very positive. He'll stop. And he said something to me the other day because I made up some words in one of the, you know, re rehearsals. <laughs> and he said, Chris, in a, in a performance, I applaud that. That's great that you can just keep going. But as your conductor, music director in a rehearsal, I'm going to correct you so that you get the right word in your head, you know. And and he does it in this kind way. And I know many times I go, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Don't say you're sorry. 
this is a rehearsal. I mean, he empowers just us. Just fix to, it. <laughs> just fix it. Don't do that again. But 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 he does it with a nice in a nice way, and I I appreciate that. It's really it's really great. Well, well it's the opening. Oh, it's the opening of the 29th season of the Union Avenue Opera. You can find out all information at unionavenueopera.org. Turn they, of the screw. Uh, they have three operas this summer, and I'm really excited. Oh, because, well, they're having Don Pasquale, which is fun. It's just going to be mm -hmm. fun. After We've got horror, and then we yes. have fun, and then we have an American classic in Ragtime, one of my favorites, and I can't wait to see that because you're going to have this small cast, and they're going to have this giant cast. Oh, yeah. I think they've got 40 people in the chorus or something. It's going to be huge, yeah. Yeah, so, and it's going to be this grand, uh, oh. well, three centuries, or not three, well, you know, it goes through a lot of time. Yes, <laughs> It goes yes. through a lot, a lot of different time periods. But what is really cool about turn of the century is it is an hour and 45 minutes. A turn of the screw. Yeah. Right? Oh, turn did I say screw. turn of the century? Turn of the screw. It's yeah. an hour and 45 minutes. I don't think I've ever seen an opera that. Well, that's about how long the first act of Tristan and Isolde is. You know, <laughs> Isolde sings for an hour and a half in Act One of the opera, just, and it's about a five-hour opera. So this one is each each act is um, under an hour, and then of course there'll be an intermission. So, um, but that's that'll be a, a, an early evening for you know opera goers. Yeah, but it'll be and it'll it'll be fun. It will. It will be. And for the newbies, they have the words on the side of the stage so you can follow along. Yes, you can Wait. see if I'm making up words or not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, now now that was something you probably never had to worry about before. No. With no, because now that they do the super titles, yeah. You, yeah. They know if you're saying something wrong. Well, yeah, and a lot of the opera houses now have the little things on the back of the seats so they don't disturb anyone. If oh. you, don't, you can turn the light off. And in Santa Fe, they have it in like three languages. At the Met, they have it in four or five languages. You can choose what you want to uh, to look at. So they're in the chairs now. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Oh so, wow! Fancy, fancy. Well, well, be, besides opera, you do uh, are a visiting singer. Like I've seen you before with the Box Box Society, mm -hmm. and you've been with the St. Louis Symphony. And the Het, you perform at the Het in yes, McKendree. Yes. And then uh, Belleville, is it a Philharmonic or the Masterworks Chorale? Yeah, Masterworks. I, I know, yeah, you do You do a number of local events. I try to because it really, for me, I love to be able to be at home, you know, and, and I have a lot of friends, women I swim with at the YMCA, they're coming to see Turn of the Screw and, you know, um, I'm going to be with the 442s again this year in December with the um, Holiday Spectacular. So it, it's it's fun for me to just participate in some of these other events. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, before well, we let you go, let's let's talk about your charity. You're working with the sixth graders still, right? No, I'm not working with them right <gasps> now. But they're teaching. Well, because you're working. School's out, school's out. Yeah, and plus I'm working. And their teacher retired, so we've not... Uh, I know, I know. So I don't know if we'll try to pick that up, but we did this for about 15 years, and I would go down to Marissa, where I used to teach, and we would do, um, you know, we would do um, lessons on whatever I was singing at the symphony, and they get to come to rehearsal and whatnot, so it was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. 
So I hope I hope someone picks up that torch and you can continue because I do too. Yeah. Because the kids they once they're exposed to it, a lot of them something will click and say, uh, yes. this is for me. Yes. Well, I had a young man knock on my door about two months ago. And he said, I don't know if you remember me or not. My, my name's Tristan. And you were singing an opera about Tristan and Isolde. And um, I was in your <laughs> sixth grade opportunities group. And I just want you, and he's like in his mid twenties now. And he said, I just want you to, um, um, to know that that meant a lot to me. And, your passion about being on stage inspired me and now I'm uh, doing acting and singing. So you you never know. You never know what might spark. And Opportunities is such a great name for a program. Well, and the kids in that first sixth grade class that we did it with, they they came up with the name. So it stuck. Yeah, it was cool. Well, what a pleasure. And uh, I guess with you working on July 4th, you can't have your hootenanny. No, no. The Hoot Nanny, I think, is going to have to be on hold. Yeah, yeah. We Because uh, the show is July 7th, 8th, 14th, and 15th. Yes, yes. And when we all got our contracts, they're like, there will be, you will be working on July 4th because that will be a dress rehearsal day. So, yeah. So it's going to be, um, I hope everybody comes and enjoys it. And um, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, uh, break a leg because I can't say best of luck to you. So break a leg. And uh, uh, I, uh, when they were doing the Walk of Fame the other day with the Springs, I thought, Christine's got a Walk of Fame star. <laughs> but she's on, the, uh, she's on the other side. You're near the pageant, aren't you? I am. I'm across the street from the pageant. Uh, <gasps> right by uh, Chinese Noodle. And, and the pizza place. Pie. pie. I, I don't. I don't think is pie. Yeah, still there? I think no. It's closed. Oh no, is it? Oh yeah. Shoot. Uh, you should be more proud that you're by Chinese Noodle because I love that okay. restaurant. <laughs> All right, I've got to go there. All right. <laughs> go and and have lunch and look at your star. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Christine, God. thank you. It was wonderful to talk to you. I loved having oh. this conversation. Thank you. It was great talking to you both, and um, all the best. Yeah, you, you can you find too. out more about Christine at christinebrewer.com, by the way. Yes. And see her with the current king. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, enjoy the summer. Thank you, you too. Try to stay cool. <laughs> Thanks, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Lynn, there are two major films opening up this weekend. Which one would you like to talk about first? The big one or the one that has actually been out for a week? in the rest of the country, just opening up here. Oh, well, let's talk about big one. Okay. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I liked it. I thought it was a satisfying conclusion after so many people were disappointed in Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skulls. We could not have had that as the last Indiana Jones movie. This is much better than Crystal Skulls. Do you yes, admit I, that? Yes, I do. I'm, I gave it a B minus, so it's not like I hate it. I just have mixed feelings about it. I think the plot is far too dense. I I love seeing Harrison Ford back being de-aged, even Jones. Well, there was more de-aging than I thought there would be. But twenty four minutes, twenty four minutes, twenty four. The technology minutes. has gotten better. It's not like they're doing deep fakes on it. It is the 
the weird thing is don't watch his mouth when he talks. That's what's kind of that'll throw you off. But other than that, I thought it's it looks nearly natural. Yes, the um, it's two hours and 34 minutes. Yes. Uh, that It could have been trimmed a bit. Yeah, but once you sit down and you hear that John Williams score, this wave of nostalgia just comes over you and you're just swept away. And James Mangold directed this. Spielberg yes. directed the first four and he executive produced this with George Lucas because they created yeah. the whole indie yeah, thing. Yeah, but they, I, you wonder how much they had to be involved in this. Yeah, Don't well, you? It, yeah, well, I'm sure uh, James Mangold is a good director. He directed Ford versus Ferrari, uh, Walk the Line. Enjoyed, enjoyed all those. And w Logan. Mm -hmm. See, yes, he's a good director. 310 he has to a Yuma. good pedigree. Yes. yes. So he knows how to do action. He's very good at the action. It starts you off that chase scene through the streets of Manhattan. And then when we're in Tunisia, I think it's Tunisia, though. One well, and so, but we're globe trotting and we're okay. This is you know me in time travel. Okay, right. so here we are. It, we got, it, it, we okay, got hold the, on. There's only there's only time travel is the MacGuffin. That's not really a thing. So don't don't worry your little head about time travel because what they do is there is a nod to every single one of the last four films. Right, they, because we have they, we have Nazis, which yes. were the enemy in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then in Lost Crusade, and then we have the Soviets in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and the Soviets are part of this as the NASA space race. We're against the uh, yeah. It takes place movie. in 1969. Now, right. according to, according to the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Indy was born in 1899, so this would make him 70 years old. They they moved him from the college. This is the college that he was in the last couple of movies. He does not have the eye patch yet, because if you remember the Indiana Jones Chronicles, he's 90. So that, that would take uh, place 20 years after this, 1989, right when the movie Right when the uh, young Indiana Jones Chronicles were coming out, and he has an eye patch, so he has not gotten his eye patch. He somehow does something in the next twenty years to give him a missing eye or something uh, Nick Fury like. So they, I don't know if they're writing that out of continuity or if they're if something is going to happen to Indy in the seventies or eighties. Okay, so we have you don't know anything about that. So we have a flashback to start the movie in World War II, and his best buddy, Toby Jones, plays Basil Shaw, a fellow yep. archaeologist, and they uh, discover uh, they have possession of the Dial of Destiny, which is Archimedes' uh, fancy schmancy gizmo. MacGuffin. Changing time. And it's a MacGuffin. Mads Michelson is a formidable villain. We love him. And yeah. he's he's good all the time, but he's really good as a villain. And he plays this megalomaniac Nazi commander. And those those are the best kind of villains. And 
he wants to get his hand on this to rule the world. And so, so Indy's got to fight them, but because it's 1969, NASA used a lot of those ex-Nazis, if let's say ex-Nazi loosely. Former, because, former, yes. former not, but you can't say former Nazis because they're, he has a very specific, Jürgen Waller has a very specific, uh, distaste for Hitler. He thought Hitler screwed up and Germans could have won the war. Right. So he is at odds with Indy, but Indy's at odds with the space program because he doesn't, you know, he fought against the Nazis in World War II. So the fact that right. they're on our side for the space race, not sitting too well with him. So he could care less about all the mumbo jumbo with the well, with the. Well, your your secondary uh, bad guy is Boyd Holbrook, and he's great as like the secondary bad guy. Yes, and he's always a good villain. He's in a lot of movies as a villain. So he's typical Aryan race, blonde, trigger happy. <laughs> uh, he's just ominous in this. Whenever you see him, you know bad things are going to happen, and bodies start flying, and and uh, the. The fun, uh, I guess, you don't want to say, it's hard to describe Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character. She is Indy's goddaughter, Helena, mm -hmm. daughter of Toby Jones. And she's looking for the Dial of Destiny too, but she has ulterior motives. She's a mercenary. Yes, and she, she's she really wants broke. Money. She's really yeah. broke and uh, she's, uh, so what we she's not who we think she is and she'll shift through the so it's hard to talk about her but phoebe Waller-Bridge is very good in this mm -hmm. and and uh, she antonio makes a, banderas has a has a cameo in it too and it, it, let's say extended cameo yeah he plays one of indy's old friends with uh who's a sailor and a diver and that comes in handy ronaldo yeah. Yes. What is nice is John Reese Davies is back as Sala. Yeah. And, and then so there's, there's a bridge a, there's to a the kid. past. There's also a bridge to the cat as uh, Ethan Isidore. I love that name. Uh, Teddy. <laughs> he's the, he's the kid, just like it, like Short Round was. Yes. And so uh, he's. But he's he he's, Waller Bridge. He's, he's Helena's. Helper. He's with Helena's. Yeah. Which is you know a nod to the past as well. Um, and I've used the word MacGuffin a thousand times. If you don't know what that is, that's what Hitchcock called the shiny object that everyone's going for. But it's and insignificant. That's what this, it, it, it is insignificant. The Dial of Destiny, you know, they're looking for the other half. And Lynn, did you notice all this week? I noticed all the parallels to Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. There are Many, many similarities to these two movies. There's I a train that. chase. There's a train chase. There is a car chase. There is something underwater. There is uh, questionable stunt work. And even though both of these, the stunt works are great, they're not giving him stunt work that a 70-year-old man could not do. They're not making him the eternal fountain of youth he it is everything that a 70 year old would be able to do he, well, he's, he's 80. not and well yeah he's 80 but indy would be 70 here 
but he's, you know, he's hobbles around. He's not very quick. It's not the same. And we've also had Indy be infallible every single time he's been shot. He needs time to recover. And now that he's 70 years old in this movie, he is acting that age. Yes. So it, it is, um, I just have mixed feelings on it. Um, there's good and bad. And uh, I, uh, overall, the my guests at the screening, they all liked it a lot because of the nostalgia factor. It's and, a good final film for this. Sometimes yeah. they don't stick the landing. I think this sticks the landing. Yes, that's a good way to put it. All right, so now let and it doesn't matter what we say about it. Everyone's going to go see it anyway. Well, sure. Because this movie's critic proof. Now, a movie that people love the director and they love the cast, I have not seen, but I'm going to see tomorrow, Asteroid City by Wes Anderson. You didn't like it. Oh, well, I loved the look. It is over-stylized in Wes Anderson fashion. There is, it's in the desert. It's retro 50 style. It's about uh, the, uh, this desert town is called Asteroid City because it was hit by it. So there's this crater in the town. The population's 87. They have a motor lodge and uh, they have, of course, in all Wes Anderson projects, you're going to have quirky characters. And the Adam Stockhausen, who won an Oscar for Grand Budapest Hotel, he is back doing the production design. My very favorite is they have this bank of vending machines outside the motor court's office, and they have cigarettes because it's the 50s, and they have ammunition, real estate, chilled fruit, chilled fruit among the banks of that and they have a sprawling cast who are all famous and wonderful but because we have it's overstuffed it has so many characters and then we have this is the kicker we have the stargazers in town for a convention and an alien shows up because it's the 50s and it's in a desert city and all that homage to 50s things, that atomic age stuff. So we have an alien show up at the conference with the Boy Scouts and the Stargazers. And this is the thing that was just too much for me. It's so meta. It's actors playing actors in a play. But they're playing themselves. Okay. So it it's this next level that you're like, wait a minute. And it makes you Are you saying up. it's it's a Wes Anderson movie that might be too Wes Anderson? Yes. It's too too Wes Anderson. And don't get me wrong, that the, there's this little roadrunner that dances during the credits. You have to see that. That's really fun. And the the look of the film is just stunning. I can't uh, begin. When it first starts, I was like, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. This is going to be so much fun. And then it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. 
So, okay. So it's a cast of thousands. Who are your, who are your standouts? Jason Schwartzman is a widower. The lead? Is he yes. the lead? Okay. Kind of. They don't really have a lead. It's an ensemble cast. Yes. And Edward Norton is the playwright. And Brian Cranston is the narrator. Char- uh, Scarlett Johansson, you will see Full Frontal. What? Well, there was Full Frontal in uh, in the French Dispatch, too. Le- Leah. Right. Sadu. The- yeah, Leah yes. Sadu. Well, that, was, that uh, was an unexpected surprise when that happened. So Scarlett apparently directed herself in this because Wes Anderson was too embarrassed to do it. Good for him. Good for her. But and, but she's been full frontal before. She's she's done nudity before. It's not like she's right. never done this. But it's just weird. It's just weird. And so we have that. We have Lee Schreiber. It's good. Maya Hawk, who is a spitting image of her mother, Uma Thurman. Mm hmm as a like a school teacher and uh tom hanks plays okay so jay jason schwartzman is a widow but uh he has a bad relationship with his father-in-law who is tom hanks and so tom but it's a wes anderson film so there's no screaming and shouting they're just saying nasty things to each other that are probably funny Right, right. And so Tom Hanks has got a, a, a white hair, total white hair wig, and he comes to get the grandkids, and he's not in it very long. Steve Carell is wait, not wait, in wait it minute. very long. They've made a big deal of Tom Hanks being in this, and it's a, basically an extended cameo? Well, I think. I don't think. Well, they're all. They're all so. There's so much. Jeffrey Wright is the stargazer leader. Tilda Swinton has something to do with that whole uh, group of believers or non-believers. And um, uh, one, oh, Jason, Jason Schwartzman, I'm wrong. He has four kids. He has three little daughters who are way old souls. And then he has a son they nicknamed Brainiac. And he's there for the Stargazer convention. Ah. And, and that, but uh, actually... Rupert Friend plays Montana, this cowboy, and he's got the best lines, I think. But it's just, it's hard to describe because there's so many things going on at once. And Matt Dillon is in this as a mechanic. Okay. And Matt Dillon hasn't been in a Wes Anderson movie, nor has Tom Hanks. Has Steve Carell been in one? I don't recall. Uh, If it was, I'm not sure. If it was, I might have say he might have been in a, uh, I want to say Isle of Dogs. Oh, yeah. There were a lot of voices in Isle of Dogs that are in this one physically okay. because Leif Shriver, Brian Cranston. Um, and so I'm just blanking now because there's so many. It's just over stylized, overstuffed. It's not an engaging story, although the visuals are just, I just, was so happy to watch how it looks. And then I kept waiting for the story to maybe click with me or connect with me. And it just wasn't. He was not in Isle of Dogs. So this is, this is his debut. So that's good. But, and then uh, Mrs. Mrs. Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson's in this movie too, right? Right. Well, they all want to work with Wes. Oh, Adrian Brody, one of his go-to's. Right. Well, and Tony Revolori. Yes. Is in it. 
So and Willem, all, Willem Dafoe. Yeah, they all want to work. Uh, Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> so they all want to work with Wes. And uh, there's this little short on YouTube that I watched. And interesting enough, Wes does not like to have a set with trailers and trucks. He wants the cast to bond. So they all, it's like summer, I bet it's like summer camp uh, doing a Wes Anderson movie because he wants everybody to have that and not sit in their trailers and don't talk to anybody. Hang out. And, yeah. And uh, they made this movie in Spain. So they recreated really? it. Yes. It, they it looks like 50s Arizona. <laughs> yes. They recreated this in Spain. Go to YouTube and see, like, there's a little short, the making of or making the look, the design. Uh, this, to me, would be in my top five design. And okay. uh, and that's if we had that category. Yeah, well, we do have production design because right. we did vote for it for French Dispatch. But it reminded me a lot of French Dispatch where it was gorgeous and stunning and inventive and very funny in parts, but it's just too much. You know, he's got like one too many layers and you get disinterested that way. Well, one, speaking, yeah. speaking of too much, we're out of time. So we, next we week, are. let's, let's talk more about everything that we've missed this week, next week, where I think the only big movie we have is uh, dead reckoning part one. That doesn't come out till July. Uh, well, then what the hell's next? No, nothing. I know. To come out the week of I know. Of July? Well, it's all streaming. We've got the Wham documentary on Netflix, July fifth, and I cannot wait for that one. And I did see the documentary on uh, HBO about Rock Hudson. It's very sad. Very very sad. And I saw. Well, we can talk. We can hit that. Hour. We can hit that yeah, next we'll, week. We'll hit the streaming. We're going to talk streaming next week. And uh, uh, Mission Impossible is embargoed till July fifth. Well, nah. So we'll we talk could about talk. It next week. We could talk. We about will it. talk about it next week. All right, Lynn. Where can we find you? I am on KTRS Radio every Friday at eleven a.m. with Wendy and Jennifer, and I am in the Webster Kirkwood Times. I have my website poplifestl.com and we have our podcast which is available on SoundCloud, Apple. On Apple it's still Real Times Trio, Carl. Where can we find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Carl the intern and you could have found me yesterday on the St. Louis Cardinals Instagram page when I was at Star Wars night at the ballpark. They inter I was in the building for eight minutes to get my hat. And then I was interviewed by Angela Sharp. And so I was on the jumbo screen for part of the eight minutes that I was in there because I had to go work Erica Badu. So I was only in the ballpark for eight minutes and three of those minutes were spent on the big screen. So that was fun. So I got my hat and I got my picture taken with, let's see, two stormtroopers, Darth Vader, Princess Leia, a giant, giant Chewbacca, and Fred Bird. So that was fun. You can hear me Monday through Friday on the Mark Cox Morning Show. Uh, that's from 5 to 9 on 97.1 FM Talk. Also on KMOX on the weekends and 97.1 on Second Amendment Radio and the Great Outdoors. So I'm everywhere all the time. 
you are Carl. And we were at the Muni Friday night. Would you recommend Beauty and the Beast? I liked Beauty and the Beast. I did not know. I sat next to my daughter actually sat next to Gaston and I sat next to him one seat over. I did not know he had those big of arms. He has amazing muscles. And my kid said, oh, yeah, I noticed that. So <laughs> he was very good. I think this is the he's best very one pretty. This is this is the fourth time the Muni has had it. And it doesn't have to be that good because it's the kids show and everybody loves Beauty right. and the Beast. It's really well done. Oh, it's so well because John. The Perfetti first act is, is really, really long. The first act is really long. But the guy playing the Beast was the Phantom on Broadway, and man, can he sing! Woo! He's he's good. That's why they gave him songs. All right, Lynn, let's get <laughs> out of here. Yes, bye. Have a wonderful holiday, Carl. Happy and- birthday, America! Yes. Take care. Keep cool. Very cool. Bye. Bye.